Hello, and welcome to Off the Cuff. I am your host, Chris Martinson, and on this program, every week, we are going to bring you a fascinating guest, where we are going to discuss the economy, energy, or the environment, informally and without a script. Hello, everybody. It's good to be back again, and today I'm here with Adam Tagger. Hi, Chris. Well, Adam, uh, I've got just a number of things on my plate here today I'm just dying to talk about, and... uh, you know where I want to start? I want to start with a report that just came out, and, and the data's in. So get this. The four largest international oil companies all now are reporting that they faced a pretty steep decline in their global production of crude oil. They've, they've been reporting unprecedented profits, but now that the annual reports are fully out and they've been uh, sort of analyzed and dug through. So, so look at this. 2011, which is the last full year of data we, we have for ExxonMobil, Exxon extraction reached 2.3 million barrels per day of conventional crude. Uh, It's down 4.5% compared to 2010, down 11.6% compared to 2007. Wow. All right, but here's the interesting part. Uh, In 2007, Exxon had drilled 971 new wells, but then 1,249 in 2010, and then 1,606 wells, an increase of 65% in well drilling activity over those four years when their output or production of crude oil fell 11.6%. Huh. What do we make of that? Wait, you say you're seeing that for all the four majors. Yeah, that's just Exxon's data right there. I'm not meaning to pick on them. I don't think the implication here is that Exxon doesn't know what they're doing. They clearly do. Uh, One of the most mature and successful companies out there. But we're seeing the same thing uh, for the French company Total. Uh, crude production declined uh, 8.5% between 2010 and 11, and 18.8% between 2007 and 2011, again with an extraordinary increase in their capital budgets for exploration and production. Well, you asked me what I think, and I think this is a classic symptom that you would expect to see if you had passed the peak in production globally. Well, you know, it's we have another article in the New York Times today saying there's this huge energy revolution and it's because we had, you know, the government didn't get in the way and, and we have all these clever uh, pieces of technology out there. And it bears repeating the shale oil story is really important, but it wasn't nothing changed in the government stance in the last 10 years. Nothing's changed in land ownership or mineral rights. Nothing has changed in technology in 10 years. What did change? One thing. One thing actually changed over the last 10 years. And that is the price of oil. And that is the price of oil. Price of oil is what unlocked these new treasures, but it's not really going to be able to unlock them fast enough compared to, you know, when you have the major oil companies, they're scouring every corner of the globe, doing everything they possibly can. And of course, it, there's another thing here, which is really mitigating against the majors, is that a lot of countries, for some reason, have decided that their oil is a treasure and have locked off the resources into a, a nationalized uh, program of drilling and whatnot. You know, you've got uh, Brazil has owns theirs and Venezuela owns theirs and so on and so forth. So there, I just it just says the targets are just fewer and fewer. And then when we think about you know the extraordinary expense that Shell went to to drag up this huge uh, offshore drilling platform up into the Arctic and um, didn't go very well and it got beached on that island and and looks like it has to be towed off to South Korea for some really major repairs. But again, by the time, you know, Shell is dragging itself into the Arctic, a very hostile environment, it just it says something that's completely at odds with this shale story. If this shale story is so extraordinary, here's a question the shareholders of all these four majors ought to be asking, screaming at them, saying, Why aren't you doing that? Right. Right. Well, you've always said that the peak oil story really at its core is a story about flow rates. 
And it sounds like if we just step way back and squint, it looks like global flow rates are indeed on the decline. It's getting harder and harder, particularly in the conventional crude. And a lot of these reports now, Shell has started to muddy its up by putting in natural gas liquids, and uh, which we talked about before, is not the same thing as conventional crude. Natural gas liquids are not bad. They're, they're a wonderful product. There's a lot you can do with them. They're valuable, but they're not transportation fuels. And so in this story, you know, we, we have two competing narratives out there right now. One is that the world has entered into this whole new energy revolution, and there's un limited amounts of, of energy as far as the eye can see, or at least many decades worth. And on the other hand, we have the major oil companies who should know more about this than anybody, spending hundreds and hundreds of billions, doubling their capital budgets, doubling the number of wells that they're drilling, and basically treading water. Right. Or, as the data is now beginning to show, really coming up with, with less. Or even coming up with less. And so this is Really something I, I invite everybody who's listening, this is something we just have to keep our eyes on because the the stories that we're being fed out there and the major data that we're able to get, it, it, they're just not squaring up very well at this point in time. I can't, you know, if, if worldwide oil, especially oil available for export, starts to really climb and climb in earnest, I will be changing my tune. But this is the mystery to me. Uh, all of that data is still fairly consistent with the idea that oil supplies are tight, as is Brent crude at 113 or 15 a barrel, wherever it happens to be today, uh, as is the idea that uh, when India or China is going out there right now, they're, they're using words like they are scouring the globe looking for oil contracts that they can lock up. Uh, China's uh, busy mucking around in Venezuela going after this really obnoxious heavy oil uh, supplies that are down there. So it really, it's just I, the story is still remarkably consistent with the one we've been telling for a while, which is that the days of cheap oil are clearly in the rearview mirror, but even the new stuff that's coming online, it looks like we're treading water right now. Yep, and I know you're in the midst of a three-part series on looking at the, uh, the, the, well, really the global energy picture, but in particular the shale plays. Um, but uh, you have, I know, talked to um, both doing primary and secondary research. You've, you've talked to people and seen data that show that these shale plays are, are, are not all that they've been promoted to be. In other words, uh, they seem to have uh, uh, much shorter lives, and in a lot of cases, people are out there digging in, in rich deposit areas, yet coming away with, uh, with poor-performing wells. Is that true? Well, there have been a number of dry holes that are coming up as, as uh, companies now explore the edges of the shale plays and, and are you know, figuring out where the, where the borders are. And, and so those borders, guess what, are disappointing. Those are dry holes uh, or not economic holes because they're coming up mostly water with just a tiny bit of hydrocarbons in them. And uh, what we found, the general story is this, the, the, in the shale gas plays, generally speaking, on average, what we thought we were going to get out of each individual well, so this is the ultimate recovery uh, number that we're looking at. Uh, you know, is this well over its lifetime? Is it going to last 30 years? And if so, what's the flow rate? How fast is decline? Generally speaking, the companies that were operating there would say they would, I'm going to make a number up here, say they were going to get 10 billion cubic feet out of a well, series of wells, or they were going to get 5 billion cubic feet or 3 billion. They had some number for a play. And generally speaking, you can take the numbers they were touting two or three years ago and divide them by two, hmm. uh, according to the USGS, according to a number of uh, private firms that have uh, started to really analyze the data. And, and so there was a, a vast overstatement. Um, the USGS actually downgraded the amount of shale gas they thought was going to come out of the Marcellus play, uh, which is the big hot one right now. They basically divided that whole thing by uh, two. And, and so here we are with... Um, 
you know, it's it's an evolving story. And and the thing I've I've gotten the most from my primary research, talking to people who've been in the oil business 20, 30, 40, 50 years, is that they say, oh, the shale plays? Listen, uh, the whole oil story is one of boom and bust. It's just, this is just another thing. They, they All the symptoms of a boom, they, they recognize. And they say, guess what? It, eventually that will play out but uh, and become a bust at some point. It just has to. So if I was in North Dakota, I'm a North Dakota leader, I would not be looking out, how am I going to build my my uh, state out for the next infinite period of time, I'd be saying, how am I going to start to save up some of this wealth right now and build out my infrastructure in a smart way so that uh, when, not if, when this finally busts on us, we're left with some sort of a durable infrastructure, maybe some jobs that make sense, something other than a whole bunch of unplugged leaky wells that we have to now deal with. Well, I haven't done the research that you have, but I have not read those questions being asked very much in the materials that I've been reading. Nah, not a lot. So uh, I love data. Here's another piece of data that came out this uh, week that, that's uh, been fun. Corporate insiders are really aggressively selling their shares. It's a really high ratio of insiders. The ratio right now stands at 9.2 to 1. That means these companies, uh, owners, insiders of these companies, on average, were selling more than nine shares of their firm stock for every one that they were buying. In the past, whenever we've hit these levels, it's been more consistent with tops as these companies, theoretically, as the thinking goes, they have better insight into their company's prospects. They understand more temporal data that's coming in, sales, uh, orders, things like that. And so these would be the people who are in the position to know. Let me put it this way. In, in the data series, there's not many times when insiders are, are selling like crazy that that's a great time to be on the other side of that transaction. For sure, for sure. We certainly saw this happen up to... Uh what went on in 2008 as well. Um, it's just one of those classic examples of, of, you know, what you advise, which is, you know, don't just look at what people are saying, look at what they're actually doing. This is one of those times where I think um, company, company leaders are out there thumping their chests and talking about how great they're doing as the economy recovers, but it looks very much like they're, uh, they're actually getting all their assets and their exposure uh, locked up and, and uh, out the door. Well, that's a possibility. It's something to be aware of here. It's, it's, uh, I, I know that as we look at the stock market today, just tried to sell off a little bit, but then just couldn't find any momentum for that and just kept marching higher. So there's uh, something else out there in the data that's really been catching my eye lately. I, I've been waiting for it to come in. I noticed uh, on Zero Hedge a while back, uh, they've been tracking over there at Zero Hedge the amount of gold that's coming into China. And this is just stuff that, that's reported. It's coming in through Hong Kong. There's a lot of visibility into it. It's at least the stuff we know about. Absolutely staggering. So 2012 total China imports of gold hit 834.5 tons. That was double the 431 tons in 2011. Jeez. It's just extraordinary amount uh, of gold that came in, at least through that channel. And China is one of the largest producers of gold. None of that uh, finds its way back out of the country for export. So it kind of looks like uh, China, when they opened up that spigot and said, go ahead, citizens, buy gold, this is the kind of thing you might expect. And boy, is it working. Well, and that certainly jives with what we're hearing from the dealers and the you know, people on the ground here in the states that you and I talk to that say that, uh, I mean, it's been a, a trend they've seen happen over the past decade, but, uh, uh, you know, I know out here in, in California on the West Coast, uh, I would say not even the majority, but the vast majority of buyers that I'm hearing when I talk to dealers um, are, are buying from Asia, and the gold bullion is actually leaving America for 
eastern shores. Um, and of course, the vast majority of the sellers are locals. So we really are, you know, at least at an individual level in this country, it seems, uh, dehoarding our treasure and, um, and shipping it off elsewhere. You know, it, it really uh, reminds me of something that I, I, it just came out very recently, I think yesterday or so. There's this person, Nigel Farage, he's a European Union parliament member, and he had this really great quote. He, he, he said, I'm going to take a, a piece of this quote. He said, I think these are really, really worrying Orwellian type developments. However grim the fundamentals are and however much politically there's a rising opposition movement across the whole of Europe from north to south, from east to west, the reality is that he who holds the status quo for the moment holds power. Things are going to deteriorate to get worse and the economies are going to decline. They go on and I heard this all morning again in the parliamentary chamber. We must increase government spending, which means we must increase borrowing. And he goes on for a little bit, and, and his conclusion is, uh, he says, I just think there must be people sitting there in Singapore, India, and China, and they must just be laughing their socks off. They must be saying, these guys are handing us control of the world's economy and transferring the wealth of the world from west to east, and we haven't got to lift a finger. They're doing all of it for us. Yep. And on top of that, uh, they are uh, doing it for us at a bargain rate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they're intervening to keep precious metal prices low. So they're doing it, you know, at artificially low rates. We, I'm sure they'd be happy to do it even if we were doing it fair market value. But, you know, lucky for them, we're, we're doing it on the cheap. Well, it makes a lot of sense that, that gold's going into China, that, you know, they've kept the peg to the dollar. So uh, the yuan is, is uh, reasonably strong at this point. There's arguments it could get stronger, so gold could get even cheaper for them. But it's probably still a heck of a bargain at, at, at these prices. And and when you set prices low for a commodity, demand goes up, and, and we're seeing it. And to me, the idea that China imported 830 right. tons, but in real terms, probably mm, with their domestic production, you might double that uh, number. And that's just extraordinary to me. And you couple that to the idea that you've got, uh, what now, Germany, Austria, a lot of, lot of European countries, citizens saying, hey, maybe we should have our gold back home again. There's really a huge story brewing in gold. And the mystery to me is, it, well, it's not that mysterious because I've been watching it for a long time, is how the U.S. press still goes out of its way to minimize and denigrate gold and, and pretend as if there's nothing going on. But there's an extraordinarily big story developing here. Well, I agree. And you and I haven't talked about this much directly, but I'll put you on the spot here. Is this a precursor to a gold-backed currency? in China at some point? Well, I think China would have to really increase the, the total amount that they've got in. But if you're a patient sort, which I guess they might be considered. They might be, yeah. Yep. Uh, this is exactly how I would go about doing it. You would, you would want to get as much of it as you possibly could inside the borders of your country for as cheaply as possible. So as long as the United States and, and its proxy agents are, are willing to keep the price of gold in check, are willing to continue to badmouth it within one of the largest markets in the world, are willing to do everything they can to, to minimize gold's luster so that they can cast a better light on their monetary policies, however reckless they may be, this all just simply serves to allow more gold to flow from point A to point B, and point B being China. So if China's willing to let this go for another two, three years, they could easily accumulate another, well, if they can go at eight, 900 tons a year, uh, they're going to be uh, one of the world's largest gold holders and soon the largest gold holder in the world, all without having to risk 
having that spigot turned off because of uh, imagine what would happen if China came out and said we are going to quintuple our our official gold holdings and we're going to do it you know in the next year i bet you would find uh, all sorts of places like the united states doing like a, another equivalent of slamming the gold window like hey right. let's just uh, let's stop that no this is we can't let china do that if you were thinking there might be a strategy involved here it, it there could be it's starting to there's enough smoke here that i'm i'm pretty interested I'm laughing and, and, and actually sort of crying inside. There's a, a really good example of, of how well we've succeeded in America of um, distancing uh, you know, the, the mass market from any sort of appreciation or respect for gold. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it yet, but there's a video on our site. Yeah, um, I saw that. <laughs> where, where a fellow goes around and just asks random pedestrians on the street, to guess the price of gold. Uh, he has a, a gold maple in his hand, a one-ounce gold maple, and he says, this, this one-ounce gold coin is yours. If you can tell me the price of gold within plus or minus 25%, and so many people miss it, he raises the discount to plus or minus 50%, and nobody even comes close. I loved the one guy, he actually puts it in his hand, and when I've put gold in people's hands, this, I see that same reaction. Their eyes widen a little bit. They get the smile on their face, right? He feels it, like he's in touch with the wealth embedded in that. And then he's asked, how much does he think that gold coin is worth? And what was his guess, like 120 bucks? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure it would have been like 30 bucks before he put it in his hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he really outsized, supersized his guess on that one. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so uh, the common man right now is just very detached from any, any appreciation, even of uh, you know, today's relative value of, of the precious metals. And, and uh, to your point, that, that works. If, if, this, if, if what you described is China's sort of long-term plan, it certainly plays right into it. Well, moving on from, from gold, let's talk about platinum for a moment, which has uh, you know, really been on fire of late. It has, and, and a lot of that's uh, being driven by supply concerns. South Africa is having extraordinary difficulties. They've got labor strikes. There are a number of other things working against the, the mines there. And a lot of the, the, most of the, I think it's about 40% of the world's platinum production comes from South Africa. And a lot of the mines there have been in play for a long time. They're extremely deep. The, the, they've been following these veins for a very long time. The ore bodies are depleting and quite dilute. And, and so uh, by the time you put a little bit of economic difficulty on top of that, where labor costs might be going up, obviously fuel costs have been going up, it turns out they've shut down a number of these mines, and it's unclear if they would open them back up again. I doubt they might, e even at these prices. So the possibility at last year, even without you know all of these current difficulties, I believe the world was in deficit about mm, two, somewhere between two and 300,000 ounces of platinum, meaning we were dipping into above-ground supplies. Platinum's consumed as part of industrial processes. It's recycled pretty aggressively, but not always. You know, Not every catalytic converter makes it back into the reprocessing plant and so on. Uh, so I'm actually looking at, at platinum as kind of a, a, a real surprise here where, uh, so it, it actually has a scarcity play now uh, built into it. Yeah, interesting. And I, I, uh, I don't know the platinum market as well as I know gold or silver, so I don't know the breakdown between industrial demand and investment demand, but I've got to imagine that a large chunk of platinum's demand comes from uh, the industrial side. And you know, every time I look at the uh, number of car shipments globally, year over year, and, you know, they just continue to march, march forward. And I, I assume the same is true for other industrial uses of platinum. So you know, it sounds like as, uh, as time goes on, um, with these mine shutdowns and the, the general scarcity uh, that you're talking about, you know, there's a real argument to be made that, that platinum could go a lot higher from here. 
Yep. Oh, absolutely. It has quite a ways to go before it hits its old inflation-adjusted high. It's it's actually quite far off of that. So uh, it, it might have some room to run. It's just definitely worth watching and, and looking at at this point in time. And so, oh, I'm noticing uh, we're almost out of time here. It is February, which means March comes next. And in March, we're going to have a seminar, a weekend seminar at Roe. Lovely facility. It's always a great time. I just wanted to mention it here again for anybody who's thinking of coming. Now would be the time to uh, register for that. And it's just, just going to be a, a fantastic time. It's very intimate and it's a great place to meet other people and Adam and Becca and myself. Great. And just to add a little clarity to that, additional clarity, Roe is based in uh, western Massachusetts, a uh, very rural, very pretty remote place, um, perfect for these types of, of intimate gatherings where we really delve into the material that we go through. Um, I will say that uh, response this year has been pretty high so far, um, certainly higher than the past couple of years, uh, which we're very excited about because it seems that the group of people that are coming this year uh, are very motivated and uh, uh, bringing lots of passion and energy. So if this is something that you've been thinking about going to, it's probably a really good year for it because I think there's going to be a great crowd showing up. Absolutely. Well, with that, that's all the time we have for this edition of Off the Cuff. Adam, thank you so much for helping me out with it. Pleasure as usual, Chris. I'm sure we'll talk again soon.